here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Bambi Slam, because I recently spoke to their frontman, and songwriter is the one and only Roy to find out more about life, love and poetry. Um, it's a very long interview and a lot of the beginning part gets edited out and then some more gets edited out and eventually we get down to most of the interview. Um, and there was a point where we were talking about, I suppose, the gatekeepers of life, especially in the early years and people like John Peel, the you know, music papers, all that kind of stuff. And... Um, so this is uh, a bit of a difficult start, but uh, we get there in the end. So anyway, Roy's talking about the gatekeepers, and uh, this is where he picks up the conversation. Anyway, Roy, it's well, over we'll to you. we'll go back to early inclusives, but let's be spontaneous if it's okay with you, the gatekeepers thing. It is such a valid point, and we all talk about this. In the old days, you had to actually do something, get somewhere to actually make a record, right? Now anybody can make a record, but... You don't hear about them. There's so many. But let's face it. Everybody's special. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a song. And it's just the people that really want to hustle and have some kind of, you know, broken head or hole to fill that, you know, try to make it. What is making it? You know, it's like you, you make art. It's like I told you the last time my song on the back of rock and roll. Just because I never sold a painting doesn't mean the paintings aren't good, you know. And now there's no gatekeepers everybody's out there but there's so much stuff how do you hear about it but this comes back to what i talked to you last interview too let's face it it's all pr it's fucking money it's you know like why is it pepsi and coke or heinz ketchup does better than this ketchup or you know it's like if you whatever product you have and records art stuff no different than ketchup or can of beans and this brings us back to andy like andy well whatever you think of his art when he says the, the thing to Lou, it's the work. And David Golder, yeah, it's the work. Besides, you know, the big things of life, your love, your family, you know, the sunshine, a cup of coffee. What else do we got? Well, it's, it, you know, people, doesn't matter about your sex. Maybe you like to build things. My friend's a hot rod maker. I have furniture friends. Or you paint things. Or you, like, you know, design, like, houses and clothes or whatever. You know, anything you do. It's like you need to be busy. People in primal things are busy making this and that. Okay, so I, I've gone off on a tangent. So back to early things. So I was aware of music. My German mom and this thing. My parents weren't artisty people. My dad took me to James Bond movies. My mom took me to Jane Fonda movies. You know, they weren't watching fucking Godard or fucking, you know, Truffaut or and, you know, whatever, arty shit, you know? And my mom had like a little thing of seven inches. And in that was, I forget who the people that do, but hang down on your head, Tom Doody, that one, and a John Cash record, and now suddenly I can't remember it. But that was it. And we never listened to music. They weren't like artsy people at all, you know? But in the court, for some reason, we had a Fast Domino cassette. Now, Fast didn't write all the songs, but that, I think I told you this last year, but that, in my, looking back, that's how I learned to write fucking songs. Like, and I had to go for the record. I'd go by the Hank Williams, Brian Wood Johnson handbook. That's the Bible to me. And 
that Pat's Domino tape, it's got You In Again by Hank, but it's got so many great songs and Fats, you know. And by the way, Jerry Lee, the killer, just died, right? Yeah. And I wrote a piece called The Last Man Standing. Who knew the killer? Because besides Elvis, those early rock and roll people, they all lived to their 90s. Chuck Berry, remember, he only died a couple of years ago. Pat's Domino was lost in the hurricane, whatever, 20 years ago, but he only died a couple of years ago. And Little Richard, too. Fucking the killer. Jerry Lee was the last man standing. That's crazy. But yeah, so that I learned to write songs. I'm so fascinated by music. And now I'll tell you the Black Sabbath story because I just did this on New Year's Eve. So I love music so much. It just, I mean, I love it so much. There's things like I, I don't know if it sounds pretentious, but. I see that, like, I hear music in my head. That's why all the record, I can do, I do the strings, the drums, the bass. I'm not bragging, but just you know, the, the, the band names are wrong. It's like, but I hear a record, oh my God, since I was a kid, wow, the drums are doing this, the bass is doing this. I didn't even know what it meant, but I listen to the record and can figure it all out, you know? And I was over with my friends, the Mackays, Natalie was the bass player. The first bass player in the band is that we've known each other since we were five. She's like my sister. And she was a twin, not identical. And she had four brothers. And they lived right across the street from me. And you know, it's a common thing all over the world where someone's moving in next door. And when you're a kid, you hope it's going to be some other kids you can be friends with. You know that feeling? Yes, absolutely. Because I grew up in a village. And so there was a limit of how many people one could hang out and play with. So yes, I would imagine. And there's not much that goes on at those times. So um, I could imagine the excitement. Okay, well, get me back to Black Sabbath. But see, this is where we're going in different tangents. But this is almost more valuable. The thing about exactly when you are young, You've got this people, the only people you can interact with is the people around you. And I thought about this a couple of months ago, and I've been surveying my friends. Like, when was the first friend that you really had a connection with? Because when you're three, four, five, six, you're hanging out with the kids that are in your school. And you're, you know what I mean? Like you said, you've got a limited thing to deal with. So I'm over at the Mackay's, and I already love the harmonica. I think I heard it on Stone's records, but I definitely know this. And here's when you go the Black Sabbath story. So for my 10th birthday, I was over at the Mackay's, and I heard the answer by Black Sabbath. I'm 10. I don't know what the fuck that is. Oh, yeah, my sister, though, she, by this time, had the 7-inch of Fox on the Run, and what's the B-side? It's like, like that's, That record, right, had two massives, Fox on the Run, and what's the other big song? There was Ballroom Blitz, and there was... <laughs> That was it. It was ballroom blitz on the A side and fucking Fox on the run on the B. What the fuck? Those are two A sides. So I say to my mom, for my, what do you want for your 10th birthday? And I'm like, um, this Black Sabbath record, right? And my mom gets it for me. So that's my first record. And your first record, like, I listened to that so many times, David. You know what I mean? You have no, I think you do actually. You have no idea. But it's like the Martin Short story when he met Frank Sinatra. He goes, Mr. Sinatra, you have no idea what a fan I am. And Frank goes, I think I do. <laughs> so uh, I listened to that record like nonstop. And then sometime my sister was having a party downstairs in the basement in Canada, right? 
And me and my brother were listening to air vents. This is so crazy. And I heard some guy say to my sister, I didn't know you were into acid rock. And my sister goes, what? And he was looking at the records, right? And he goes, Black Sabbath? And she goes, oh, that's my little brother's. And the guy goes, Roy's into Black Sabbath? So, fucking, I don't even know, let's say in the 90s, I live in LA and I go to this Rockaway Records and I see that album. Now, okay, so I moved on. My next birthday, I got Kiss Alive and then I moved on. And see, that's a funny thing. I left Led Zeppelin and Kiss and all that behind when we got our age, right? Because that was old people view. We got into Echo and the Bunnymen and the Smiths. And even before the, the Smiths and Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, Roxy Music and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And there's punk after that, right? That was ours. Mm. You know? it, it, it's like, but like 30 years later, I saw it at Rockway Records for like in the $2 bin. I bought it. I came home with a dumpling Echo Park and someone was going down. I had a beer and a joint. I put on the record and woof. It was like the thing about possession where it's once it's in you, like Martin Short and Stephen Martin. Like I act like those guys all the time. I realized from my child seeing it's in my it's in me now. And the record starts and all of a sudden I know every word. And I haven't really listened to it for years, 30 years, you know what I mean? It was my first record. I played it inside and out. I rarely listen to it, you know. I listened to it and I knew everything every word I could sing. I knew the guitar solos. So you asked about early influences. Who now would have sounds? Still, don't think I can play music. I tried to play the guitar, but I'm too ADD and I couldn't deal with it. You know what I mean? And so I go and I let's go from ten. So that's 1975. Talk about a good time, right? Like, oh my God, I'm a sponge. Everything, all I eat is music. I just love it. You know what I mean? Not thinking of a career, but I just love it. I not think I could do it. And that's what thing I think I told you where it's like you really didn't when you saw like David Bowie and Stevie Nicks and Stephen Todd. It's like whatever, you know, the James Brown, fucking Jimmy Anderson, how the fuck the Beatles, I can't be that. And then the little pistols came along and I looked at John and I thought, Oh, I can be that. Well, of course not that, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, the dear old sex pistols. Yes. So you were you must have been kind of young, because to be honest, the pistols came along seventy six. 77 did you did you pick up on the pistols a bit later in the 80s though no i picked up on them fucking right away but not not 76 not 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 like you know but when their first album came out and this is a thing too it's funny because they had a different mechanism the ramones you know we'll get to the ramones story but it's like they never really broke and things that just didn't happen and it's funny because i'm in 1979 when i was 14 I just turned 40, I was 13 really, but you know, a month into 14, and I never heard of them in 79, and I'm fucking 14 and totally, like, again, we have no internet, you know how it is, right, we're, like, you could, you, you, oh my god, I was thinking about the old scam, like, if we wanted to get a record, we'd have to listen, look at the NME or, you know, Rolling Stone and decide if we wanted to plop down the money to see, right? Yes. What it's like, now we got, we can listen to it and go, this is a pile of shit, or this is great, or whatever. So, back to where was I, David? I think it was the Ramones. You were talking about no, just just, uh, just the thing no, the pistols. Pistols, right? So, yeah, 
there was a show in Canada called New Music or something like that. And the funny thing is, it was this girl, Jeannie Becker, that went on to do a fashion television, TV fashion television Canadian show. But John Roberts, who had like a mullet and was the cool guy, he's now the big anchor guy on CBS News in America that took Dan Rather's job. Anyway, so I saw the Pistols when they first came out. You know, first records, you know, obviously not 76. I was 11. I should have been hip to it, but, you know, how could I? But when they came out, the record, you know, I guess Warner Brothers or whoever did it in Canada, they got onto much music, no, new music, new music show. And I saw, I think, Anarchy, whatever it was. And, you know, it's still, it's mind-blowing. Just the whole, we used to talk about the Pistols, Paul and Stephen being like little brothers all those years, and that chemistry, you know, it's that, you know, it's like having brothers in a band, kinks when you have brothers in a band it's like some kind of magical power and uh yeah it's just amazing like what can i say anyway so but that's still later so i'm going through all this about the romantics and this is cool right to just talk about bands yeah yeah absolutely do. yeah the romantics that first record holy smokes and it got plays too nobody gets that it's like those guys they, they, it's just because people weren't as successful. You put the Dead Kennedys greatest hits records, say 10, 12 records against the Beatles, the Stones, whatever, and it holds up. You know what I mean? It's like, and hey, the Pistols had one record. But yeah, wow. So I keep going, chugging along. What is it? So 10 to 15, 10 to 14, let's say. Boy, like everything. And that's that's the one thing. You don't want to be such a smart ass. But I got disco. And oh, yeah. Saying this, I didn't say this to you, or did I say so? Yeah, I did. It's like, hey, it would that shit, if something's good, I say this thing. It's like, if you can make your record right, you have a sound, David, and you play it for you know, name anybody from the hip hop world, old, young, Quincy Jones, Paul McCartney, you know, whoever. And it's like, and they go, wow, that's great. You know what I mean? Like, you can hear something magic, something magic, everybody knows. And yeah, if you can do that. And so when disco came out, I'm sure that Keith Richards and James Brown and fucking everybody alive was like, holy fuck, Casey and the Sunshine Band. That's the way I like it. Not can't be done with Bee Gees. You know, it's like, it's amazing. And the thing about that is all those records are live drummers. The biggest disco records, that's what blows my mind. They're all live drummers. And now in this world, everything's robots. Like seriously, think about it. The Pulse of people, especially in hip-hop and that, it's all drum machines. And the techno world, all drum machines, right? Yes, I know. And, uh, I mean, but it's interesting you mentioned disco. Did you sort of get into people like the Tramps and Edward and Starr and, I don't know, or just... Cool. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again? Yeah, of course. Like I said, like, why, besides life and love and your family and food and party and life you know my only interest is sounds and records and the recordings of things but also you know movies and books and things and stuff like that but yeah so like i said disco holy smokes man and still have you ever seen there's a documentary about the making of abba records and it's benny and bjorn or whatever in the studio and they're pulling up i think it's an eight track like or a 16 track 
not 24. And they're going through how they made the record. And they show you, they pull up the faders. They have that for the Beatles too with George Martin. It's great, but that is mind blowing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, oh man, I'm Boney M. I still want to actually, I'm going to make a song where I want to sample that. Doom, 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 from Daddy Cool, yeah. It's like, because that was one of their bigger ones. But they play that here all the time. So, yeah, I mean, uh, all of it. Like, we can go through everything from 70 to 75. And everything, like I say, hey, that's a good point. It's 77. Yes, I do. So how do we get the, I guess, yeah, that new music said that, oh, there's this new band from the, England causing a lot of sensation the sex pistols and they played anarchy i guess you know and so 77 so i'm 12 right but that's the thing i remember that 77 fuck i loved fleetwood mac i loved casey sunshine band the beatles i loved the none of bds the disco stuff right i loved old rock and roll like aerosmith and ted nugent ted nugent you know he doesn't have a lot of songs but like a couple of them wow mind-blowing yeah so i'm just enveloped in david bowie of course yeah yeah yeah. i mean i'm so into david bowie i just told you already the halloween story right i don't know yeah so yeah i dressed up as david bowie for halloween and when i was 10 yeah so see i was 10 so i did that in 75 but that's because i had a cool older sister you know that's that that's one of the things people talk about that too right in your interviews is having yeah tom petty said this maybe too having an older brother or sister is the greatest thing for a kid, especially if you're into music, you know what I mean? Because they've got all this music, and back then, you don't have to buy it. I know, but did she want you to listen to her records, or did she forbid them and say, look, you're my little brother, you mustn't play my records? Interesting question, but no, so cool. I know exactly, it's been in so many movies and TV shows of like, you know, keep your hand my record don't come into my room no, no no my sister did not care about me playing her records she wasn't oblivious and that well that's she's kind of like my mom and dad know that you know i was thinking this but now i'm going to say it earlier when you, i was just listening briefly because i know i'm doing all the talking sorry david but uh she would buy the greatest hits records and i'd be like Come on, can't you get one of their albums? But that's the greatest records. Uh, what's the Stones one where they're in front of a castle? Um, Hot Rocks, is that it? I, I don't know. It's in, they're in front of a castle, and then the cover is all their heads in profile, but like they're but like you can't see them, anyways. So, yeah, she had greatest hits records. But so, David, as you can imagine, I'm devouring this stuff, you know, anything I can get my hands on. So, again, all we have is the radio, right? Or your sister's records. Like, seriously, David, where else was this shit coming from to you, you know? That's a good point, right? Where are you getting your info from? Yes, it's, it's the radio. It's the radio. So, ah, I just grabbed this. I remember at some point when I was like seven or eight, I asked my parents if I could move down, sleep in like the basement because there was an old radio there. And I already had trouble sleeping then and I would listen to the radio and that thing that Don Henry and other people Chuck Berry and uh, Little Richard he talks about when you could hear the AM radio from like fucking St. Louis like in Toronto I could hear it and it's really crazy isn't that and I would go downstairs and I okay go to bed you know you're seven I gotta go to bed at eight o'clock what am I gonna do at eight o'clock and I would tune the radio and just like I do now 
and I'd go from station to station. <laughs> the noise is fascinating me, and going station to station, and then oh, suddenly I'm hearing this magic shit. I don't even know what it was, you know, KCLA, San Francisco. I don't know, but yeah. So, sorry, David. I, I, I and, and by the way, for the listeners and David, I had a bit of a health scare the last week, and so I. Tried to sleep last night. I'm super tired, and uh, but I didn't want to delay more, David. No, so no, that's me. fine. I mean, just on, on that point and that period of your life, because there's one band you mentioned in there, which obviously we all loved, and then you sort of have a bit of a not tricky relationship. It's not like Gary Glitter, but Fleetwood Mac. Which was the Fleetwood Mac album that you listened to during that period that you were obsessed with and which which were the particular songs and who wrote them because that you know Fleetwood Mac's kind of one of those bands it could have been Chrissy McVie it could be Stevie Nicks it could be Lindsay Buckingham each one's quite different isn't it I just which which was your part of the uh, your love affair with Fleetwood Mac okay a lot of things that you just said there first off wow to have a band with three songwriters that are that good because Christy McVie doesn't get enough credit but you listen to that songbird song it'll break your heart like her voice and her piano playing wow you know and then Lindsay and Stevie both solo careers so not obsessed again this is I'm 12 believe me Fleetwood Mac hey just let me say David don't don't put me into this box brother I'm kidding but you know no it wasn't obsessed or anything just I heard it and I if you're not getting I please don't be thinking I'm pretentious. I just, I get it as I get older. I, when I hear records, like, I get and know how the strings are going. And, oh, there's a little organ. I didn't know what a Hammond was, you know? And it's like, I listened to that shit, and it blew my mind. I didn't even own the record. It was just all around me. And never going back again, the live version, on some live version of theirs, that's the one where he whispers, he's in the stage and goes, you don't know what it means to yeah crazy and the opening song what's that one i know a secondhand news secondhand news i know they're embedded in our consciousness aren't they it well i i not so much david because like i said i don't you know if you say this i go no no but it's like not really because you stop listening when 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 do I? But actually, at least recently, the past couple of years, I did listen to Fleetwood Mac, and not just not just the Rumors record. But yeah, not a, not not such a big deal. But it's like this now going to old rock and roll. I have a thing for guitars. Like when I hear a record, I don't hear the words. I hear the whole sound at once. So the person's voice did it. And we talked about this, right? I read this little thing about this idea about. Voices, you've got a tuning fork. Maybe you're a D minor, I'm an A, this person's a C sharp, whatever, right? And certain singers resonate to you. I won't mention any names, but that's why, you know, for example, people don't like Morrissey or Michael Stipe from R.E.M. I personally love them, you know what I mean? And there are certain singers, I, it just doesn't work for me. I get them, I respect them, it's nothing personal, it just doesn't work, you know? And everybody has their little feeling of what they like and not okay that's so what, what, what were we saying i got lost there well i think it was it, we, we were sort of slightly i'd mentioned about Fleetwood mac and and you did a beautiful version of lindsey buckingham whispering when on the live version but then said <laughs> which was you you channeled the wit with the, the spirit i did 
I did, like I told you, I, I, I've been thinking about this, like how Steve Martin, like I said earlier, is such a part of me that I realize, you know, excuse me, like I've been doing this since I was a kid. And music, yeah. So, like, oh no, guitars, that's where it was. Yeah, like the sound of guitars is really what I, I, I love more than everything, okay? But not instrumental, I don't know. With all the years, from Les Paul to fucking Dango to, like, Charlie Christensen. You know about him? This jazz guy? Nobody talks about him, for example. Like Blind Willie Johnson, but Charlie Christensen, you know who he is? No. God, I, I, I don't. I will have to, I have to Google and, um, and listen to him. What was, it, what, was his, what was his surname, Charlie? Charlie Christensen. Christian or Christensen. Christian. Charlie Christensen. He is, like, nobody, nobody's even heard of him. And he is, like, acknowledged. Besides Dango, he's like the fucking greatest jazz. It's, it, yeah, it's like, I think, 30s or 40s. Anyways, guitar sounds. And that's one thing I would like to say about the Bambi Slam. That, wow, those sounds. It's all the sounds. Like the Mary Chain. And, you know, think about the Stones and the Beatles. They really got great guitar sounds. Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin. I mean, God, Led Zeppelin. I mean, let's go there. Did you, were you a, a sort of a heavy rock guitarist more than a blues guitarist? You know, fa, you know a fan of... David, I'm not a guitarist. I have this joke. It's like, when people say, do you play guitar? I go, yeah, I play guitar like Bob Dylan, not Jimi Hendrix. You know, like I play guitar to service a song. I can play guitar and sing a song. I know Jimi Hendrix. But since I write the music and make the music, I design or hear in my head envision a guitar solo and then I have to figure out how to play it. So just for example, I'm just improvising now. I hear in my head right? Then I gotta go figure out the slide and figure out how to play it. Yes. Blimey, that was um, yeah. Because I I know when you're at a certain age, keeping with the guitarist. I mean, the first time you see or hear Jimi Hendrix, it's it, it kind of changes your life, doesn't it? Purple Haze is is kind of the moment, isn't it? That um, is is kind of big because you know we we aren't at that time in the seventies. We don't have the access, and I know you just said that already. But you know the the access to everything, we just have to sort of pick little bits and sort of grab hold of them because you can't just. Google, you can't just search it. You have to sort of work at it. You have to stay up late at night to watch the Woodstock film or, you know, or Monterey Pop Festival. I wish I never saw that shit. But David, interesting. They were about the same age. Absolutely. Like, now you hear about Jimmy. Jimmy to me is Bible. When I say Bible, the Kardashians apparently say this, but it's like, that is my Bible. Like I said, Blind Willie and Hank Williams, you want to learn how to write songs? But with no bridges or middle eights. That's the funny thing about that. Just technically, those songs don't have bridges or middle eights and inst big instrumental parts. Maybe there's a little pedal steel. But Jimmy, I don't remember first hearing Jimmy. I remember I was already like stealing cassettes when I was like 10 or 11 from the mall. And, and I stole smash hits. And holy fuck. Yeah. But see, not Purple Haze. Wind Cries Mary and Hey Joe when you first and have you ever heard the CCR song Effigy? No. Check it out. It's like Hey Joe. 
who is Vernon Effigy. Okay, so you know what? Um, yeah, the guitar sounds. Hold on. Are there? I'm here. Yeah, so guitar sounds. Ask me another question quick and do as long as you can. Yeah, okay. So what <clears throat> you mentioned a little bit earlier was, was you were talking about your neighbourhood and you went, is it the McKay family moved over and you were hoping that there might be somebody that you would know and become friends with was that a person that you started to have a friendship with and were they members of 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 your early musical band oh yeah we talked about that before so yeah so when i don't know if you're just to this uh but when you're a kid and some neighbors move in, you're always hoping, oh my God, there's someone, oh, there's a new friend when you're like 10. So the Mackays moved in Louis, so across the street and two doors to the right. And they had six kids. Wow. And so Natalie and Nancy, they were the twins. They were like one year old. So they were your age, actually. They were, they were the dragons from 64. And uh, then they had four older brothers. And, you know, when you're just a kid, wow. So there's these two girls that move over when you're five. You know, it's not any kind of weird thing. It's like, uh, and then they got these cooler older brothers, and they were the cool. I mean, goddamn it. If their dad, Gordon, who was like my dad, I loved him so much. And it's like, if they were the Jacksons, they could have made the coolest sort of like, you know, like that would have been the 70s, like, rock band not like rush but like neil young and rush mix anyways so yeah they moved in and those boys four teenage brothers again like a couple years older than me older than my sister you know they had like the most extensive record collection like like oh, mind-blowing think of four teenage boys i'd say aging if i move talk about six years old so they're like they're they're like 12 14 when i'm six you know what i mean so that's where it's like i listened to that stuff and i already said the black stabber story so yeah it's like they they had so many records and again my sister had you know bruce springsteen's greatest hits the rolling stones greatest hits you know whatever yes so was it was one of those people natalie that was part of the band at um during yes so we're friends since we're like five or six and that, like I said, their family is like my family. We're, we're how many years, David, really? So I'm in England, and I think I told you this last time, but um, and I end up living in a squat on the old Kent Road, and that's a whole other story we can get into or not. But uh, and my next door neighbor, Nick, the original drummer in the band Sam. He lives next door. He says he's got some drums and he hasn't played. Now I think he's 22 or 23. I think I was 19 or 20, you know. And we're like, let's get your drums. And we had to wait like six months till his stepdad, I think, came down from Nottingham, I think, their family, you know, and brung the drums. And I called Natalie and we're still friends till I moved from Toronto to London. And I'm like, Natalie, come on over. Let's start a band. No, I already said, come play bass in the band. Because we'd already, her brother Michael had taught me some guitar. So he was a very talented guitar player. See, I am not, he is the type of person. Which, uh, that's just an interesting thing. 
you know, about the guitar players that, you know, Eric Clapton, Eddie Van Halen, Jimmy Hendrix, they could just pick up the guitar and play along with the record. What? I can't do that at all, you know, but Michael could. So he would teach me stuff. And Natalie and I would fool around with music, you know, when we were like teenagers, you know. So I remember that. And I said, Natalie, come over. I've got a free place to live. I'll teach you bass. And let's do this. So, yeah, we did it. <laughs> Excellent. So that was, I mean, just roughly, how did you get from Canada to living in a squat in London? Did it, Did you just think, right, I'm just going to, I need to fly the, the family nest here and sort of have a new start? Okay, David, if you really want me to do this, yes, that's why you're doing it. I, like I said, I don't know what the last interview we did, but again, this is prepared material. And here's what happened. So I go to California when I'm like 18. I took a Greyhound bus. It was $99. One way around trip from Toronto. It took three days. No stopping, David. You want to talk about a 17-hour flight to fucking Australia? Three days on a Greyhound bus. I wanted to blow my brains out, man. It was like the worst experience of my life. Really, honestly. Well, not really, actually. (laughs) I've had worse. (laughs) Now. (laughs) Boy, I was 18. I thought, is this how bad it could get? Nope. It can go worse, Roy. So, yeah. So, but I couldn't work there because I was an illegal alien, right? I didn't have a social security number or whatever, whatever they call it in England, right? The, the thing. But then I remembered I was born in England. So I decided to go to England. Then there was a paper in Toronto called Now Magazine, I believe. And this guy, who shall remain nameless because I'm a little pissed off at him personally, right now still, because I'm a big guy. Uh, and he had this column in the Toronto paper and it was live from London and it had an address and it said, if you got any questions, write to me here. So I moved to London. And again, I call this hit the ground running when we had to do it, David, there was no Craigslist or Skype or I mean, no, like going online, checking shit out. Right. So you got to town, you had to go get a newspaper and look in the newspaper for rooms to rent. Right. There was no, Airbnb, or do you get what I'm saying? Yes, it was it was that or the YMCA, wasn't it? I didn't even know about that. But I got to stay. The guy said, you got two nights on my couch, Roy, a friend of my, my flight attendant. Oh, by the way, in between that time, when I was 19, I was a flight attendant for six months in Saudi Arabia, but that's a whole other story. So, and that's how I got the money. I saved up to go to England, right? And I came with 1,000 pounds, euros, whatever, an entry. And I go to look for a place and I meet this guy who's got a melody maker under his arm. I said, Hey, you look cool. You got a melody maker, man. Um, are you looking for a place? Oh no, wait, wait, I'm go- I'm going ahead. So, so I got to find some place, but I go to this guy that wrote from now magazine. I go knock on his door in fucking Camberwell, Brixton. Right. And he opens the door. I said, hi, I'm from Toronto. I read your thing here, and I just thought I'd come and say hello because we're from Toronto. You're so naive when you're a kid, you know? And uh, he's like, uh, yeah, that was for people to write me letters, not <laughs> to close my door. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So I pull a classic roll, and I walk in, and I was like, wow. And, I'm, and again, this is in my two first days, David, of landing. And... Uh, I'm looking for apartments. This day, this is like day one or two, in the the standard, right? You buy the paper, and then you gotta, you know, get a phone card back then and call up and go and look at the apartment. So, 
I go to this guy's place and he invites me in, you know, and we walk up to the and go, wow, what do you got? How did you get this place? He goes, oh, it's a squat. I said, what's that? He goes, well, if it's an abandoned building, you can live there legally. And he goes, but you got to take the ones from the Greater London Council, right? GLC. Don't go into private residence or they just come with baseball, baseball bats and beat you up, you know? So I'm like, really? What? Squatting? What? No rent? Are you kidding me? So then after that, I, and I said, oh, yeah, I actually said to him, wow, you guys got so much room, you know? Couldn't you guys let me stay here for a couple of weeks? Like, I don't know this, you know, they're like, uh, no. You know, we just met you in that case off the street. But he only had the place I would have maybe done it. But he says, but there's this place uh, called Snow, the squatting network of Walworth on Old Kent Road. He tells me about it, and I'm going to go there the next day. But then after that, I went to this, look at this room. It was like 75 quid, I think, a, a month or a week, or I don't know, David, back then, but the money, but... And I see this guy, the Melody Maker, and I talk to him, and I say, you know, have you heard about this thing squatting? And he's like, British guy goes, but I didn't know you so upper crass, you know, that whole class thing in England. And he goes, but I don't need that. I've got money. And I said, me too. And we talked outside, and he goes, well, how much money do you have? I said, well, keep this to yourself. But I've got 1,000 euros. And he goes, oh. I've got considerably more. Now, in case I forget, jump to the story after we lived together for four years, this guy never bought toilet paper or light bulbs, whatever, right? And I find out he inherited 750,000 quid when he was 21. He's 24 this time. Do you hear what I just said, David? Yes. He met me and I changed his life. And he thought, okay. I didn't know it till after you here. This is this super rich kid. Like, this is no joke, David. Fucking, that's like over a million dollars American. He's like 24, 25. He's a bit older than me. But he wanted to live the Tom Waits sort of, you know what I mean, life. And he did it through me. And I later met his other crazy rich people. They're all from Oxford or something, something like that. And anyways, so I say I heard about the scene squatting. We go to walk over the squatters network of Walworth on the Old Kent Road, and as we're passing it, on Burgess Park, you could all Google map this, listeners, and there was seven houses in the shape of an L at the end of Burgess Park, where after World War II, you know, they fucking rubbled all, not just fuck the Nazis, like they, they rubbled, the, the British government rubbled all those, you know, two up, two down Coronation Street houses and built those tower blocks that are income to daddy videos, you know what I mean? And massive attack videos, I mean, maybe not massive attack, but you don't talk about those tower blocks in Brixton and in, 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 in Camberwell there. Yes, it's... Um... But we had the last seven houses and they had run out of money in the 70s to tear them down and there were seven left right at the edge of the lake in the shape of an house. And one was clean towards, I forget that road there, but it was, but the other one was like where the house is ripped down and there's the, the wall there still where the, you can see the wallpaper and the stairwells, you know what I mean? On the wall of what used to be a house. Does it make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, the um, evocative it's scene, it's an evocative scene. No, it's, it's David, like this is nothing to do about me, right? Or my ego is like, this was magic, man. We come. So, if this isn't boring, I will go on. Yeah, yeah, no, do. 
So we're walking. We see these houses. And I say, and GLC on two of the windows, you know, Greater London Council. I remember the sign so clearly, David. And uh, I say, hey, Mark, those look like they might be squats. Right? So we go over there. And Alvin, there's this guy coming out of what would later be Nick's house with, like, a board with someone else carrying it with a bunch of rubble on it or something. And he's just like Brian Jones, right? With like a yellow dandy, like blazer, striped trousers, the blonde hair and everything. And I walk up like, I got such a little idiot, Canadian naive fool. And I'm like, Hey, are these squats? You know, it's like Steve Martin talking there, but you know, and uh, he goes, yeah, they are. Well, I said, well, I'm looking for a squad. He goes, well, go talk to the guy in number three. So I go around the corner. There's only seven houses, David. I knock on the door. This guy, who later we know is Pete Green, not the guy from Fleetwood Mac, but in like a green jumpsuit and like crazy beard. I'm only like 19 or 20, and he means like maybe 28 or something, or 32. And I say to him, hi, are these squats? We're looking for a squad. And he goes, got a pint of milk. I'm like, uh, we're like, we were told to talk to you about the squads. He goes, got a pint of milk. And Mark goes, should we get a pint of milk? And he goes, yeah, get a pint of milk, come back and talk. So long story short, it's a long story. We go in his kitchen, have a coffee. It was so disgusting. I remember the milk flow. I didn't know that the cream in the British milk, I'd only been there two days. You know, the kind of milk in the old days that you get where the, the sort of, it's almost like butter floats to the top. So then he says, yeah, you guys seem cool. We climb over a roof into what would later become Nick's, where I saw this guy's walking out of the drummer from Danny Sam. And, and I look in there and go, oh, boy, this is a lot of work. Then we go into what would become our place for four years, David. And listen, man, do you, I don't know how much material you want, but this is what's in my material. Detail, like all the floorboards were ripped up and everywhere. You know why? Because England was so poor people would go into these old buildings and take the copper pipes from the mains. This is the main line, right, by your front door. And then there's the copper pipes. They took those. Our house, you know, all the plastic around the light bulbs are where you plug in things. People were so bored, poor. They would take the plastic off the light switches on the walls. Who does that? And they would sell it for like 25 cents at the Brick Lane Market and stuff, right? So anyway, we get the squat, and for three weeks... Me and Mark, I gotta say, for this rich kid, we slept on this old couch that was in there. We didn't even bathe. Like, this is disgusting, but for real. I got a hand to him, so as no bar, and we cleaned all the rubble out of that. I had to, I'm not a handyman. I plumbed that house. We measured everything. I went to the hardware store, got plumbing, hooked up to the main line, paid a guy 20 euros to come with a key to turn your water on. Then you stole electricity. You know, you, this guy came with a rubber glove for 10 bucks. And he put like a copper pipe into the mains fuse that was gone. Boom, the electricity's working. You would think that they would have just cut the things to the house. Nope. It was all running for 10 years. It was abandoned, by the way. So the place was, they, they, we talked to people there. I think the place was abandoned from 74 when they couldn't knock it down to 84, 85 when I moved in or whatever, 86. Anyway, so yeah, I fixed that place up. Like it was like literally an animal cage. And oh, I missed the funny thing, David. And then we'll get back to So Natalie came over. We had a place to stay. But I lived in a place, David, for four years with no hot water. Just think about that, right? 
Now, do you remember also that the bathroom was outside? Because this is our place was built in not 1870. Our place was built in 1780. Can you believe that? So when I'm living, it's 200 years old already. That's nuts, right? Again, it's not 1870. It was built in 1780. And there was no plumbing. So the bathroom is outside. So I lived in a place for four years with no hot water. You had to, in the night, walk out of the house, out into the backyard to the plumbing bathroom, which I took the plumb, by the way, too. And uh, I had to go to the public bathhouse at Camberwall. I had to go to my friend's debate. But you know what? Those are the best four years of my life. Put them in chat. God, that's so, amazing. Yes, well, it, um, yes, I mean, that's kind of his, his, quite a historic house. I suppose it had um, a lot of interesting features. So then did it, did it become a bit of a scene, your, your place, during this, this period? No, no. Everybody sort of laughed at me. I was sort of, this sounds a bit bitter, but it's true. I was, you know, I was a crazy Canadian guy that was too nice and open and friendly, you know, and, 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 and trying to, and, you know, all my friends were like, cynical little British twats and I mean that in a good way but you know it's like and they you know they would laugh at me liking John Cougar or like REM you know what I mean and it's okay and then they were all very shocked because they all had bands and that went oh my god Roy's on mute you know and yeah and it went from there Yes, because I know from there was quite a lot of Australian bands that came over during that time, like the Go-Betweens and the Triffids and also the Chills from New Zealand. I think they all needed to sort of escape or, or sort of get a bit more exposure and, and London was kind of the place they often went because there was, yeah, good squatting. So yeah. did And Nick Cave too, I don't want to cut you off, but yeah, Nick Cave too. You're absolutely right because think about it. Like Canada say, you're in Australia, okay, doesn't matter how good you are, like ACDC, you know what I mean? The, obviously, fucking top of the heap shit. But where are you going to play? Melbourne City got four places, you know, in Canada, same thing. You got 10 provinces. There's not that many people. So if you're a Canadian band, you could do one big city that's 10 shows a year, you know, and what are you going to do? So, yes, but but two things. So, yeah, I think that, like, even the K, they had to, those bands, but they were already bigger when they got, they were, you know, and to, to put back to your thing, there was, not a scene. They tried to um, put our bands later. I'm not going to say what they call the scene because I find it insulting. But uh, not, we're not really. But um, uh, there wasn't really a scene, and, and but there was a squat. But I want to say there was a squatting scene. You know what I mean? And that was different. That was not about the record industry and stuff like that, or even about music. It was really a beautiful thing. Like I'm not even going into that, even though I went into quite a lot of detail about the squatting. Because like I said, that's not about me. It's not that's nothing like your my thing, but that squatting stuff is fascinating, right? Like I found it fascinating, you know. And like I said, after yeah, but back to what I would like to talk about, yeah, there was a whole squatting scene where there was parties, you know. It's you're not dealing with the outside world. Squat parties, all these raves before they were raves, you know what I mean? Really, because I was there at the beginning, and it's all my same friends and all the people that started to get this shit together. And look into the Detroit Waste Company. And you know who you should talk to and you should look into? Do you know about World Domination Enterprises? Oh, my God. I listened to... I did an interview with a guy called from the Flux of Pink Indians, and he mentioned that band to me last week. Well, see, something's happening. Get in touch with them. Keith Keith, because they... They were the greatest fucking... This seems like band I've ever seen in my life. And I realised after... I, you know, 
everything imploded with Warner Brothers and I got shafted, whatever, whatever, right? It's like, after that, I turned my band, my because I still played, you know, my techno punk stuff, you know, with drum loops and shit like that. But my band became, I was so, like, in love with them that my new music, the songs we infused, they, I, I turned into World Domination Prize because they stopped. I don't know what happened to them. But listen to that album. Holy shit. And say, thing, we don't play music here. I wish we did, David. But I could say, you know, for the listeners, just go look on YouTube. I can't get to the website stuff or even SoundClouds. Look at YouTube. Whatever Bambi Slam stuff is there. But, yeah, World Dom. And I did a cover of their Asbestos Led Asbestos. I think Front 2 for somebody did a cover of that. But I did my own cover. And I just love them and adore them but yes they were part of uh i think i told you sorry and if you want to go to that story of how the mute thing happened because world dom was part of that um and they introduced it to there's the mutoid waste company which was sort of i guess mad max had come out so it was mainly mad max waste. but it was these raves and these parties and these bad and fucking places in london and these guys built their own cars and had like fire and like you know what i mean just it was magic yeah this or, did you did you at that stage <clears throat> go to any festivals like glastonbury you know the early glastonbury's or did you nope. um nope i was poor i lived off 24 quid a week, David. Can you imagine that? Yes, that's 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 um, probably a lot of tins and tomatoes and TVP, didn't you? Nope. It was my German mom teaching me how to eat, and I'd go across to the greengrocers and make ratatouille and make stuff, you know. And see, that's an interesting little digression, too, not about music, but how, you know, there used to be a greengrocer and a butcher, and it just naturally worked out. It was every couple of blocks that you could walk, and every few blocks there was a greengrocer and a butcher, right? Not anymore, or Tesco's. But, yeah, so what were you saying again? Yes, no, I, I've just, um, I just wondered if you'd already, because I know people like the Mutoid Waste Company, they, they were sort of going to Glastonbury around 87. I remember seeing them there. You know, they did a Stonehenge made out of cars, which was... Um, yes, what, yes. I remember that. Yeah, exactly. But see, they were doing that years before. They they had, see, these people, the squatty people were so magical, David. Just, I don't want to stay on this when you want to talk about music, but they, they would go, Roy, we're going to pick mushrooms. You want to come? I'd be like, uh, no, that's the thing. I'm a stay-at-home, uh, agoraphobic, you know, OCD kind of guy. And I don't want to do that. Just like I never went to any festivals. I don't know why. And especially once I was, you know, in the system and on mute or Warner Brothers and I had a big agent and could get guest lists for free. I don't think, I don't, yes, I I never went to Reading or Glastonbury, but, but I was going to say, the Mutoid, those guys had their own festivals, you know, where literally before there was raves even, you know, because raves happened right as like 80, 80, 89, when they do the big, I went to those, by the way, but they would, there'd be thing, and it was, you know, there was no computers, word of mouth, and you'd meet in a forest or a field, and the mutoid waste people, there'd be thousands of people there, David. It was, it was, and free, you know, and you bring your own booze and drugs, and you know what I mean? It's like, it's a whole other level of art and shit. But back to your point, moving off mutoid and hmm, scene. So that was my scene. There was, but there was, there was a cute little thing like My Bloody Valentine. We played with them a couple of times and the Primitives too. And I think it was because, you know, we had girl playing bass, girl playing cello. You know what I mean? 
Yes, Linda, Linda and Natalie with Nick on drums, which was fantastic. And you did a John Peel session, didn't you, 87, which was a great year for music, with Dale Griffith, who was in Mott the Hoople. I don't know, but did you, I think we talked about, but did you actually listen to that? I don't know if it's, I don't know if you can, I, I don't know if it's particularly easy to locate your John Peel. It's on YouTube, we can do it right now. Pause the recording. Let's listen to it and get back to the conversation. I'm kidding, David. We're going to do that. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I didn't even remember that. Okay, and this is where, like, after the last interview, I hope that Nick and Natalie, because I thought we were all fine, and it's not some disclosure. I love them, you know, and it's like, but I had to make the records because we couldn't play. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that, that that's like a big part of the story. You know, people heard the records and it's like nothing. We could not it, it, record and play live. So I had to program drum machines and play the bass and the guitars and write the cello parts and yada, yada. And I tried to use the band backup as much as we could. But my disclosure to the band, if, 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 if Nick's pissed off, because like, I really think, you know, I haven't heard from those guys since we said, so we, I thought we were all cool. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So really well, that's, so, that, that, yeah, but... Um, oh, yeah, back to that with your so, session. Yeah, so you did the John Peel session. Obviously, Natalie had been your neighbour. Did you ever keep in touch with any of the members of that band after... We keep... Like I said to you last time, until the last interview where, where they may be pissed off, I don't know. But I do, and not just with them, with everybody... You know, I moved when I was a kid, Tingling when I'm like 19. Then I moved to LA, and you try to keep in touch with people, you know. And I'm always the keeper and toucher, you know. But again, you're hearing me talk, so I can understand why if they don't want to engage. But yeah, we keep in touch, I, and I'm always telling everybody, all my friends all over the world, let's Skype, let's talk. Maybe I have more time on my hands. But you know, it's magic now that you can Skype. Like, remember in 2001, where, you know, the idea of video conferencing from the Jeffersons, you know, it's crazy. Yes, absolutely. So I we mean, do keep in touch. we do keep in touch. And I've said to them, I always say, yeah, and we're all, you know how it is, though. See, it's not about them or me. It's like, you know, uh, yes, well, let's talk next week. I'm going doing this. It's like everybody's so busy. And you always, you always say, this is not just about me. It's about everybody. Gosh, we got to talk more. And you never do, you know. No, this is this is true. But I mean, I think that, it, you know, I don't know, it's easier now than, than it used to be. You don't have to go to a phone box with two P pieces. I mean, just um, I know I know we did quite a lot about the band because I was fascinated because you because you probably can remember. So I will say it so you can, you know, think, oh, no, he's going to tell me. But I did when John Peel played uh, played your single, the famous one, um, I went out and bought it. That is that is that is a true story. Oh, you never did? No, I did not. Okay, so two things. about. Okay, so did you want to say something more about the John Peel session? Well, I, I just wondered what your memories of it was, because obviously getting the kind of the blessing from John is, um, it, you know, he was one of the great gatekeepers of that period, wasn't he? And I just wondered what your kind of memory was with the band going into the studio. Okay, then you remember, and, and then let's do that, and then remember the one you just asked me right after that then we'll do that too but so the john peel session i didn't know who john peel was at all but if we want to go back to the world dom after and getting signed to mute uh i heard world dom on john peel because my squatter neighbors were such hipsters you know and they and i mean that in a good way 
and they, they really educated me, and it changed my life. I heard Roald Dom on John Peel. It spoke to me, and I said, boom, see, that's why I'm very instinctive. That's why I'm saying what you're tuning fork. I felt them, and I went to a record store. No, no, no. Dave from the Levelers had the single, and it had an address on the back, and I went to their house and bothered them. <laughs> so, uh, but back to John Peel. So I don't really remember doing that. And I wasn't drunk or stoned or anything. It's really funny, you know, because, oh, there's one thing. When I make records in for real like that, you got to be sober, man. You can't even smoke a weed. You cannot be like stone when people are sitting there. Right? Okay, go play. You know what I mean? So I'm always sober, but I don't really remember doing it. And I was shocked about the songs that I did because I don't remember that at all. But what I do remember about it is because we had the drum machine and I, again, no bragging, I think maybe Depeche Mode, like everybody used the drum machine sounds, you could compress them, distort them, add reverbs and effects. But I figured out that with the drum machine, you could trigger the sampler so that it could put like, you know, amazing kick drum or snare drum samples. So it sounded like real drums, not a drum machine. Okay. So about that session, it was three songs that I take so long to record. I used to. But that, I came in, I had the drum machine programmed, and I knew what to play on the bass, the guitar, I knew what the cello was going to do. I think maybe with Linda, I, 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 she'd written it down, because that's how we do it. I would hum her, because, you know, classical players, they can't improvise. They just play, oh, I can't do that. Oh, I've got to, you know, they've got to read the music. They can't improvise. So, anyways, we go in there. I do remember it caused a big stink and we were banned from John Peel because the whole point of the session is you're supposed to do it in a day, right? So I did it. Now, just that. So I did three songs in a day, everything, David. And I listened to that session and it's just as good as the Warner Brothers record, which took a year and a lot of money, you know, and my mute records. And I did it all in a day, but I had to come back the second day because I couldn't let it go with the drum machine sounds. So we had to then flip the tape, the 24 track, and they put a trigger millisecond before to trigger the samples so i made a point i could not let it go you know i've got i had to come back the second day and put the drum samples on the drums and that pissed the john peel people off and they're like the whole point is you got to do it in one day and so we weren't allowed to do them again so i don't remember actually recording the session i do remember funnily enough coming back and putting the drum samples on that was super stressful but yeah i listen to that now and i'm like wow I did that in three hours. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, most people's John Peel sessions yeah. are probably the best, some of the best recordings I remember. True. But no, I, not, not in three hours. No, I did three songs in one day. So let's say it was 10 hours even, right? Technically, that means I could have done a nine-song album in three days. And I'm playing everything. That blows my and like i say anyway so i'm sorry i just was thinking about that like because when I, I listened to it a couple of times i only somebody put it up on the internet like maybe three years ago and i listened to it once on headphones i'm like wow how did i do this all in one day but then i had to put the drum samples on anyway and what was the thing then that was a john peel and then you said something after yes well then i then i mentioned that it was you know because my obsession during that period of john peel and i'd always record it um you know on my trusty tdk you know cassette and it was when he played don't don't it make you feel i went he played it i sort of went right that's it i'm gonna have to find that record and i managed to buy this uh seven inch single which kind of always i know um it's i still think it's a it's a great track you know it's got a great vibe 
David, thank you. This is so see normal people go, thank you. And I'm not trying, but it's like, I hate that song. I put it out as filler, right? Bam bam. That's the one. I listened to that recently on ketamine, and holy shit. I because I do not listen to my stuff. And you know why? I don't listen to the old stuff because it's too painful, <laughs> you know, to think of what happened. And it's like, but I listened to that bam bam song. And I realized, wow, my first single, I think I was 20, you know, like it said everything that I wanted to say. And I realized the song was about my dad, crazily enough, if you listen to the lyrics, you know, and it's like, and I said everything I wanted to in that first single, sonically, musically, verbally, orally, it's like, I, I'm saying the same thing today that sort of thing and those guitar sounds so yeah if you like don't it make you feel i appreciate that there's some interesting things i just uh there's that one note don't it make you feel like this thing i realize that it sounds horrible to me there's like a flat note or something going on but nobody notices you know it goes by so fast Yes, it's it, it captures that moment. I know we, you know, we did sort of talk quite a lot about the band and how it sort of mutates or changes, and then and then no more. So just coming up a little bit to the current day, because you've been you in you've been in Berlin for ten years now, and you you sort of um, spoke about that. But you've been have you been recording new material? Because because. Um, I say that because you sent some tracks that you'd recorded on the guitar, but also some techno material as well. So what's your sort of the musical direction that you've got at the moment? So the irony is I came here by accident. Like I told you earlier when we weren't taping, I came here by accident and I left my recording studio in L.A. And the last thing, I made a record after Warner Brothers on a four-track cassette, you know, the, the Tascam, whatever it is that Bruce Springsteen did Nebraska on. And I got a publishing deal with Sony, and I got a major label deal with some other label that went bankrupt. Off a four-track recording, David. And when I came here, I had an eight-track piece-of-shit digital thing, but I made uh, my last full record of that kind of music 10 years ago uh, on this eight track with an S950 sample, the original, you know, a sample that has three seconds. Like if the people know about technology now, it's so ridiculous. It's like, that's it, you know, a couple seconds and that's all you would have. But anyways, so I came here 10 years ago and I, I think I had PSD, PSD, whatever you call it, post PTSD. And after the horrors of, joys and things of life the past 20 10 years i just really collapsed for like five years then five years ago i sort of came back but no no but that's but all that time i'm writing because during that time i'm writing songs all the time and making records and doing stuff i gotta send you the little two covers i just did this little gig one time actually in la no no it was here i think and I made a cover of Scott Walker's, you know, 30th Century Man. Do you know that song? Yes. Right. I did a cover of that. And I did uh, uh, a cover of Vic Chestnut's um, Supernatural. Do you know that song? Vic Chestnut. No, I, 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 I'll have to check, but I do know Vic Chestnut. Yeah, um... Vic Chestnut. Magic story. Magic. Anyways, so I, I'm recording all the time. And, but the thing is, how do you get it out there? Do you know what I mean? It's like, and like I told you about earlier, PR, that's what's really about. 
So you make the greatest record ever. And every you know, people that don't really get it, and I'm not insulting them, but you know, well, you could put it on YouTube. Yeah, you put it on YouTube, but how do you get people to go to your YouTube thing, right? How do you get the traffic, as the kids call it or whatever, right? It's like, you know, how do you get people to your thing? So what you're saying, so now I got a seven inch vinyl. Did you listen to the trick in your cave? Yes. So what this you- this is brilliant. So this is a, a record that you've re- you've put out very recently. No, I haven't put it out. I'm about to put it out. I just pressed up a seven inch of it. I'll send you one. Yeah, tricky Nick and, Cave, which um, yeah. and and the band. I I sort of um, who have you got? Because I've seen the I've watched the video. Who is this young young band you're with? Okay, so since the beginning, I and again, this is not some arrogance thing i just had to make the records because no one else could so i made them and through these now what 35 years almost david i play with whatever magic is around me you know it's like and if i'm here i've got a drummer i've got a cello player i've got you know whatever i need so that was this drummer who's now doing quite well with his own band i won't mention names you know what i mean because it's like and and that was a friend of mine playing guitar in that video but the record i was thinking about my friend david has a recording studio and some people that were doing like a nick cave compilation got in touch with me and said hey would you do a song i said well you know what i was walking through my kitchen no i was walking through the living room when i used to live in neukong and David, this is the way it happens. And we can talk about this too, the magic of this. As long as you sit on and play a guitar and you get a chord structure, you go, this sounds good, and you build on it. Then there's a song where you're just walking through the living room and suddenly into my head, boom, yeah, tricky Nick came. And the guitar riff, the thing, I go back into my bedroom. You know, Neil Young talks about it. Uh, when, when, and you know, Vic Chestnut suit, when the bug hits, that's the time to scratch it. When you get the idea, stop everything and do it. And I learned that lesson, and I do it. So I went back, wrote the Nick Cave song like that. So I said, I got this Nick Cave song. So I do it. And that's why. It's been old, it's like maybe four or five years ago. And then they didn't have the money to make the compilation, right? So I've got this sitting around, and everybody that hears it is like, wow, this is crazy. So last year... A couple of months ago, I pressed up 307 inches with that, and oh yeah, and 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 a cover of the Garbage Man by the Cramps, Garbage Man. Yes, on the B side. So, but just about that. So I went in with my guy driver in the video, and we did. We 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 tried to play it, and it didn't really work out. Then I had my friend Laura, who's very talented. She does many things in Berlin. Art director, music of all kinds. So the second day I brought her in and we played the song. It's three minutes, right? Maybe two minutes, right? We played it like three, four times and we did the best we could. And then of those three, four times, right? The song of the circle that does the, yeah, tricky decay, then the verse, then the little chorus, then repeating, right? So out of those three takes of, you know, three minutes, whatever. There was one thing where we played it right on time-ish. So that took 10 minutes. 
three times that song, right? Then I put on the bass, put on one, just one extra slide guitar and my vocals. So that record took 40 minutes total to make. And that's with me playing everything besides the drums. And the drums, again, we only played pretty close to in time. One time and get it. So it's like in the song, it's doing it three times. So we had nine chances to get this little part. And one of them was right, David. So what are we talking about? A 10% chance we had there. Blimey, that was precision stuff. But no, it's it's incredible. But does that does that mean that you... I mean, you managed to sort of straddle between L.A. and Berlin. This is, this is impressive, but you've got a studio in Berlin. So are you also, or have you always been making kind of music, or do you sort of... Yes, I never stopped. This is my point. It's like, and we talked about this last time. It's like, how do you make money? I joked, crime. I'm kidding. <laughs> but besides that, joking, it's like, you know, you make records and you put them in TV shows and movies. That's where the money is now. There's no money in selling records, right? Playing live is brutal. You know, I think I told you about that. A few nameless that I know that are from my time, but much more successful than me. I still come and see them. They put me on the list. I come see them after they play. And it's like, they're now our age. And, you know, it's one thing when you're rolling stones on a fucking plane, right? But they're on a bus and they're playing, you know, 2,000 seat halls, so do the math on that, 40 bucks a ticket now, you know, like grand, whatever it's, you know, and they get, and, and they got to do it to make money. And they don't like to. 60 old men don't want to be on a bus. Like I said, it's one thing you just stones, but yeah, so I did stuff like that. But now I got the seven inch chicken in a cave, then the ketamine P, which we haven't even talked about, which I'm excited to talk about, but, uh, and then. I've got a new album, which I've got to figure out a way to put out. So I got three products coming out now at my age, and I'm going to do. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, and you're helping in a way, to do my first UK gigs in what 35 years, as if anybody gives a shit. Yes, but people, you never know. So you've got um, a techno album, a techno single coming out. No, I don't. I've got. A Bambi Slam album, the Bambi Slam Ketamine EP, and the Seven Inch of Tricky Nick Cave. Now I'm working on the techno thing. I've got a collective, and do you know what the Kit Kat Club is in Berlin? Kit Kat Club, I've come across it. Google it. It's mind blowing. It's a whole like that's a whole other topic. But like a couple of years ago, I wasn't there that night, and. Mick Jagger comes in after the Olympic Stadium thing. It's, it's like they call it like a sort of sex club, kinky club, but it's not, David. It's like this. Is a, I'm getting into it now. It is such a magical thing. I said it's like Disneyland for adults. It's just the most crazy thing. I mean, I want to make a documentary about it. But yes. It's like not a sex club. People do have sex all around and stuff, but that's not the thing. And everybody's doing crazy drugs and stuff, but that's not the thing. And the music is not the thing. It's the people that you meet. And I, like I said, London, New York, LA, pretty major cities, Toronto, not, uh, but I'm kidding. Toronto needs, but I've been to crazy places. And this place is magic. 
and the people, the conversations you have, it's like, and everybody's on drugs. And, you know, I wrote this thing about vibes, right? Everybody knows what a bad vibe is. You come into the office, someone's got a bad vibe. You can feel it, right? Yeah. Right? So when you're in a room with 300 people, all on different kinds of drugs, having the best time of their lives, there's a vibe to that, right? Makes sense? Oh, God, yes, absolutely. It, it's like, it, it, but it only happens occasionally in life, doesn't it? These kind of moments. Right. Every fucking weekend, which is a lucky that that's good. That's a good hit rate because normally you have a zeitgeist moment. You know, there's like, oh yeah, this is a good scene, but you realise you don't realise at the time it's going to pass quite quickly, and then you think, oh, I wish I'd appreciated that a bit more. But obviously, this this is a slightly different scene. Yes, first off, you're absolutely correct and very insightful, and you articulated perfectly that thing about special moments. But I have them every weekend and I'm not trying to brag or be like it's magic David but just talking even as friends now and if people listen to this shit if you ever come to Berlin try to get in it's like wow my life you think of our age oh like I go to this place and like I said now it gets into ketamine I never knew about ketamine you know and I've never had a drug problem you know I well if you, I've smoked weed since I was 10 but that's not a drug problem I never got addicted uh, but Drinking alcoholic, as you can tell, listeners and you, I'm hyper, right? So it's like, if I do speed and cocaine, I become like, ah, David, how are you? I'm depressed. I need a hug. You know, it doesn't work for me. No. But a couple of years ago, I discovered ketamine. Wow. It's like an LSD. Do you know the famous George Harrison essay about LSD? Look that up. He really describes it beautifully. But my friend... uh, Speed Freak Tommy described it perfectly. He, he said about LSD, got the message, Roy, hang up the phone. Like, you know, you do LSD. I don't know if you've done LSD, David, what your experience with that is. Well, interesting. One minute it was beautiful and the sky was technicolor and I thought it was heaven. And then it was getting dark. I took it in a stupid place. And, um, and then suddenly everyone was like skeletons and it was like hell. And I thought, blimey, I'm never doing that again. Wow, that just described it. Holy smokes, I can see that. That well, yeah, but I go for the hell. You know, it's like so you just want okay. So this is my little piece about LSD. I did it when I was a child, fourteen or something, like twelve maybe. And the iron irony when I think about it is that we went to pick strawberries in the rural Canada, you know, and we were picking strawberries, and my friend, who we decided to do this, we're three at 12, I don't think we're 14. And he goes, I got some acid from my sister, and they were strawberry mini bikes. Ironically enough, you can't make this shit up. And I remember, but when you're 12, I didn't get it, but I do remember, do you remember in East of Eden where James Dean looks at the cabbage field, and he puts his head down, looks at the lines of the field? Well, I did that with strawberries before I saw East of Eden, but then... When I did it in London, when I was like, and I'd done it a couple of times, but I had the real spiritual thing when I was like 19 or 20. And then I did in London maybe over four years, like maybe acid five times, like once every year or two. We would call it spring cleaning, you know? But I didn't, you know, I know people that did acid every weekend and, you know, every day in school, you know? I never did that. No, I think that that could have fried your brain. Yeah, it's bearish for sure. Yeah. So, 
or Peter Green. But a couple of years ago, I discovered ketamine. And it's like tripping on acid, but different. Because I'm writing a, a, a little, I don't know what to call it, not a book but about ketamine. I, I'm studying and making notes because, like LSD, yes, there's different visuals and stuff, but it you get the message, hang up the phone. It's always the same. It's like seeing the same movie. But ketamine is a slippery motherfucker. Every time, it's different. And I can't quite put my grasp to the, I, I'm figuring out how it works yet. But I'm doing research, trust me. So I figured this out. And the thing is about it, though, you go on that trip, but it goes away in 40 minutes. But with LSD, you remember, you get into that ride, it's a 12-hour journey, you know? And like you said, sometimes it's fucking heaven, sometimes it's hell. But 12 hours, doesn't matter what age you are, that's a long time to be awake and your stomach from LSD and stuff. But ketamine, 40 minutes, you can be in a K-hole and go to a whole other, I call it a place. Like, there's a place that you go. Suddenly, woof. And have you ever seen the movie Perfume? Oh, yes, yes. Okay, so do you remember Dustin Hoffman? He smells the um, handkerchief, and then he drops it, and the whole garden bursts into flowers. Remember, it was a sort of gray scene. Anyway, that's my best description, where suddenly an LSD doesn't do this. You hallucinate a bit, whatever. But I call it the place, and suddenly, woof. But you can't control it. Like, sometimes I'll take ketamine four weeks and weekends in a row, just one night a week. You know, it's like my one Saturday night fun, and rather than drinking so much, you know, because that hurts my body more. But, and after four weeks, I don't. And then I go to the place, and suddenly, whew, the whole world, I'm in a goddamn living room. A couple of Christmases ago, my best Christmas ever. And suddenly it turns into Saudi Arabia, or as a flight attendant, I don't know. And... There's sky above and stars, and I'm in a living room, David, you know, in an apartment. And there's palm trees, and it's the desert, and I'm right in it like a video game. Now, that doesn't happen. So, back to the music. In August or something, I come back, and ironically, it was like, not ironically, but crazy enough. It was two nights I looked back after I sent you that stuff. It was two nights I did. I come back, take more ketamine, I'm tripping balls. And I had my 59 Gibson little Emily, I call her, you know, my guitar. And I had it in a case for four years because I was too lazy to do anything, you know, whatever. No, that's not true. But, And I took her out on, on ketamine speaking to her. I'm so sorry I left you in that case for four years. <laughs> really, can you imagine this? And it's like, you deserve to be played and stuff. So I said, I'll play you every day. And I'm playing her. But then I start watching old movies. And these songs start popping into my head. Right? So what that means, would you like me to demonstrate? Yes. Okay. So, this is the guitar. Wow. It's it, it's an electric guitar, but it's from 1959, and it's acoustic tune. has such a things about So I, for example, think of a line, and in the head, my head song, my, my head goes, oh, I woke up this morning. So I pick up the guitar with just that. I woke up this morning. So technically, I wrote the song, right, David? But I pick up the guitar to play it. And that night, what I sent you, I just started playing. And just the words and the chords, my hands move. And I just played all those songs right, like, off the top of my head, like improvised. But I did write it. Like, so I pick up the guitar. I woke up this morning. 
But I didn't have no cocaine, so I took a little bit of LSD. And Friday became my day, as I became the highway to get me where I really want to be. I woke up this morning, and I took a little LSD, and now it's really coming after me. And I can fly, and I can die, and I can realize everything I wanted you to be. I woke up. God, that's amazing. That is so cool. So look, so do you feel at this kind of moment in your life that you're on a new creative journey or a sort of um, a more of a hyper hyper aware journey, you know, creatively? No, I feel like in from ketamine songs because now I've logged it in. That's what I want to send you. I've mastered them through the reverb bottom, but the ketamine EP is ready to go, and in that so again just like what, what i did there that's a song of mine but i literally picked up the guitar and just started to play and just as good as that was or not good but see that was a complete little song and i just did it david i didn't i don't remember doing them i did not just the ep i did more than a whole album so first i put out the ep then i put out the album and yeah i'm talking about this like you, you only need one big record and then this is an album, but it's like Pink Floyd at Dark Side of the Moon. For most people, name another Pink Floyd record. I guess you wish know. you were here. Yeah, of course. And you could say The Wall, of course. But for most people, everybody, they pass on. It's not the internet. Teenagers pass on. Drug takers pass on. Uh, drug music. So if you listen to Dark Side of the Moon, bro, you know, get stones and that. So anyways, um, you say so a new zenith no and i wrote this line and it's in one of the songs of the city and where i want to go is where i've always been so i'm doing this all the time you know yes which is that a reference to your Kit Kat club you know your no no before that you know my 10 years being married my 10 years of single dad i'm always making music always making records and you don't hear about them, like I said to you earlier, without PR, if a tree falls in the forest, nobody hears it. So, no, it's not even to do with that. But but I will say that the ketamine thing for, you know, my type of personality or mental disorder or whatever you want to call it, it's like it works. And I was like, see, and, and, and then they're saying that ketamine is good for depression, too. I'm like, wow, there's no downside to this. I can't believe it. And, of course, then my friend's like, yeah, apparently it's really bad for your kidneys. But then I just went to a doctor. He's like, Really? I didn't hear it's bad for your kidneys. I heard it's bad for your brain. So here we go. <laughs> this is cool. Look, Roy, I'm, it's nearly six o'clock. I'm going <clears> to, <throat> you'll, you'll know what I'm going to say. I'm going to have to make a bit of a move soon. But look, this has been fantastic. And um, I really appreciate this. This is great because actually it's kind of quite different to last time catching up. And I'm really pleased to hear what you're doing. So yeah i mean if you get a chance yeah do give me or send me any links you've got to any of these kind of new stuff when they when they're sort of available because i'd love i you know i'd love to put them you know also play them on the show as well so um and also yeah it'll be be... so yeah 
Uh, that's what I said. I don't know how to do it. Send me because we only talk on what we talk on. Uh, I, I can do it here on Skype, though. I'll send you links to stuff because just do yourself a favor and like, listen to it. It's it's sound sculpture. You know, it's you. It, it, maybe you listen to it one time as an idea, but it's not something you put on to listen to all the time. I don't know what my music is, but it's like it's something. And uh, yes, and I think that also, see, we don't just talk about music. We're branching off into a lot of topics, but I think they're interesting and not necessarily about me, just about life and love and the pursuit of sorrow. So, but also, while the listeners are still here, so yes, we'll do this. It's great talking to you, David. And remember, for every year, we started it. I do my interview of you, and you can choose to post or not. But so, do you want the. Uh, do you want to play during this thing? You're going to put them in this show? Because if so, I will send you a package and I know exactly where you should put them in the interview. Or are you thinking of music for this show? Well, it would be good to um, put those tracks into this interview as well, actually. So, uh, David, let's do it. Uh, that's what I was hoping for because, you know, so you, you got this all recorded. You can edit and stuff. Send me how to send you because... Uh, Maybe WhatsApp will be the easiest for me. Actually, let's talk about this when we get off. But um, yeah, stop recording and we'll talk about this. And I'll send it to you over the next day. And the, the specific songs we talked about Bam Bam, the first single after you said Don't It Make You Feel. Bam Bam, and some ketamine songs and then some of the newer like stuff. And yeah, that would be nice. And just disperse between my mad babbling. This is cool. This is brilliant. Okay, look. I'm gonna better. I better hit the road because um, I've got a few, a, few, a, a, dead, a sort of six o'clock appointment. But look, thank you, and look, have a lovely evening. And um, Berlin, it, it's the place that's me. What was your three lines? You said, Lon- "What was that?" You said, "London does something." London brought me up. LA brought me down. Berlin brought me back, baby. That's brilliant. It's funny. That's, that's a great line. Anyway, look, have a great evening. And thank you. I'm going to eat and take a piss. It's been a great conversation, David. So, yes, we're done. Go do your thing. But then let's talk tomorrow and I'll send you the stuff where we can intersperse the music. Okay. Cool. Okay. Take care there. See okay. you later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.